2: Available front row massaging seats, available 33 inch all terrain tires, and available multi terrain select. Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. For her new book, Ole Hercules traveled to every corner of Ukraine, from the Carpathian Mountains to the Black Sea, to explore the food of summer kitchens. Today, Hercules shares her memories of these kitchens, her love of pickled watermelon and pig's ears, and why she believes in growing your own food.
3: There was a point where I thought, oh, what if they do run out of things or what if, you know, and then then I just suddenly thought, oh, maybe we should dig up a little bit more of that lawn, you know, put more soil in and, and start growing. In Ukraine, it's definitely a very important part of people's lives. I don't know. And also, it's such a joy.
2: Also coming up, Dan Pashman tells us about his favorite snacks for the beach. And later, we share a recipe for Taiwanese grilled corn. But first, we hear from Dr. Howard Conyers. He's a NASA rocket scientist, whole hog pitmaster, and former host of the PBS digital series, Nourish. Dr. Conyers, welcome to Milk Street.
4: Oh, thanks for having me.
2: I've never spoken to a rocket scientist, especially one who can do a whole hog, but this is the first time for everything. Uh, let's start with your first time you barbecued a hog. Uh, you were age 11. You learned, I guess, from your father among other people uh how do they do it
4: um the first time i cook a whole hog i know we killed the hog first and then we actually butchered and then once we get ready to do the barbecue we uh we it open i uh, had a burn barrel and uh we had the wood ready to go and i burned the embers down all night and shovel coals throughout the cooking process until it was done and my family came over to partake of the whole hog
2: in Vermont, they often use refrigerators for smoking, but you said that I think sometimes you take a refrigerator and take the top off and turn that into a barbecue pit,
5: right? Yes.
4: Yeah. So we take the refrigerator, we take the insulation out of the refrigerator, and we lay it down horizontal. Right. And within that refrigerator, we will actually uh, put racks just to kind of hold two pieces of fence wire. And so those two pieces of fence wire will sandwich the hog when we get ready to flip it at the very end of the cooking process. And we would have a door. We would cut another little door on basically one of the side walls, so we could put coals underneath the hams and the shoulders.
2: So 130-pound pig's going to take all day, right?
4: Yeah, we, we generally like to have anywhere from 10 to 13 or 14 hours of cooking time. But it also is a function of the outdoor temperature. So in the wintertime, times, generally take a little bit longer to cook. And just sometimes some animals are just a little stubborn.
2: <laughs> Alive and dead. Uh, Alive yeah, and dead. That's true. Um, So who gets to actually take the meat off the bone once you're finished cooking? Is that a bunch of people show up to do that?
4: Sometimes people will eat it off the pit, but then another time we would bring the whole hog in on a pan and take it into the house and uh, we will work it up like that. And what I mean by working it up, we want to get all the bones and stuff out of like the shoulder blades, uh, hip bones, the ribs. Because you want to mix the loin meat with the rib meat and the shoulders and the hams because Each of those meat sections have a different texture as well as a different flavor. And so when you're eating whole hog, you want to have a mixture of that. And that's the reason why I believe whole hog is the holy grail of barbecue, because when you cook like just a Boston butter or pork shoulder, it's not the same experience.
2: You said that cooking whole hog was a tradition that was getting lost, and that's one reason you wanted to go start it up again. Uh, Why was there a move away from whole hog cooking?
4: Barbecue was being lost in my community because the number of black farmers that cook whole hog was gone away. And as those farmers went away from the land, so did the whole barbecue tradition. And what I realized was the only way I could really see this tradition carried forward in a really authentic way was if I continued on in the way that I was taught. I mean, I, I like a good steak. I like a good hamburger. I like good ribs. But I think also to me, Cooking the whole animal is more. It's also about fellowship and coming together. To me, when I cook barbecue, it was generally a way to show a lot of love to the people we really cared a lot about.
2: You talk about engineering and being a scientist and and cooking a whole hog. What does your engineering background help you with when it comes to cooking a pig?
4: I would say. The techniques I use for cooking barbecue are very traditional. But when I went to cook a whole cow about two years ago, I probably could have brute force it. But I said, why not use an engineering approach to actually be able to handle and maneuver the loads of a whole cow?
2: So you have a 500-pound cow. What did you do to be able to move it around?
4: It was probably about, this cow, we had a little one, it was probably about 330 pounds, and that was plenty big enough. (laughs) But, um... (laughs) I never cooked the whole cow in my life, but I knew from reading literature, old historic slave literature, that uh, I would have needed to kind of rotate the cow, not like a rotisserie, but periodically through the cooking process. And so I wanted to be able to turn that animal with ease every three or four hours. It with almost a turn of a finger. So
2: you put this on a big metal pole and then wrapped it up with wire or something and then- Yes, yeah,
4: so we, we had a big pole. We had basically built like a cage in the center of it, and we sandwiched it together, lock it in, so when we rotated it, it wouldn't fall out.
2: And how long do you have to cook a 330-pound cow?
4: I think that cow took about 24 hours, 20 to 24 hours.
2: Another thing you said I really caught my attention was you said, I never knew the word pit master growing up. <laughs> you wanted to talk about that. <laughs>
4: Growing up, when we cook barbecue, I never heard the word pitmaster. Pitmaster was something I heard in the past maybe 10 years or so. And, and, and what I will say about that is the people who call themselves pitmasters today, a lot of them I don't think are truly pitmasters. And why I say that is because the individuals who I learned from, they learned to cook whole hogs or whole animals in the ground, then transition to cinder blocks or refrigerators or old fuel tanks. And they never use any thermometers. I have seen some cooking equipment today that if you set it up right, and you you could almost walk away from it. And I don't really consider that a barbecue pit master. And a, a pit master should be able to cook any whole animal in particular. Because part of the, the barbecue thing is when people was farming, they didn't kill a whole animal just for a brisket. They killed the whole animal for the whole animal.
2: So how did you end up, on one hand, being a rocket scientist, on the other hand, doing whole hog cooking? I, I guess there's no reason they shouldn't go together.
4: Growing up where I grew up in the, in the area of South Carolina, whole hog barbecue was all around me. So it was just one of those things people in my community did. But the whole thing about becoming a rocket scientist, I could definitely say that's a very rare thing. But what I, what I would say, my love of math and science came from growing on the farm. I had like a laboratory every time I worked with my father on the farm. Hmm. The appealing thing about engineering and science to me is the ability to solve complex problems. You're given a set of constraints or factors, and be to put them together in a unimaginable way. That is what keeps me excited about engineering, and it also shows you the beauty of the human mind. If we want to do something, if we could think it, we can almost do it.
2: So. I don't know if you can answer this question or allowed to, but where is NASA these days in terms of the kinds of things it's trying to do and, and achieve?
4: Uh, I don't know if I can answer that, but I mean, I know that we're working on, NASA's working on something called Space Launch System. Um, it's going to the moon and going to Mars.
2: What would be really cool is if you go to Mars and do the first whole hog barbecue. <laughs> You'd have to figure out how to do that. and. <laughs> An environment with no oxygen, but maybe you'd figure it out. You
4: think I get a lot of likes on Instagram?
2: Instagram's going to go nuts. They'll have to shut it down. <laughs> Dr. Conyers, it's been a real pleasure. Whole hog cooking uh, for the 21st century. Thank you.
4: No, thank you for having me.
2: That was NASA rocket scientist and pitmaster Dr. Howard Conyers. It's time to take some of your calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101.
5: So, Chris, before we get started, I wanted to ask you a question. Have you ever had a complete disaster, like when everybody else was waiting in the the next room for dinner and you just completely messed something up, you know, you burned it, dropped it, something like that?
2: How long is this show? An hour? We have to, <laughs> I
5: don't yep, think we have you, enough huh?
2: to... If it was an eight-hour show, I could go into the highlights. I think the worst was I had a magazine group, editor and photographer, etc., coming up to the farm. I made an impromptu sort of blueberry peach tart, right? Well, I did a great job, I have to say, with the pate sucre and everything else and in the uh, tart pan into the oven. And it slid off into the back of the oven <laughs> down oh. to the bottom and... I said to everybody, why don't you go outside for a minute, you know, bring out some drinks. In 10 minutes, literally, or even I think it was less, six or seven minutes, I made the dough from scratch, put it in the pan. I didn't have peaches, so I just used blueberries. Got it back in the oven. It was a record. And then when we served lunch, I think the editor from the magazine said, wasn't that a blueberry peach tart? (laughs) And I said, no, it was blueberry tart. (laughs) <laughs> oh Didn't goodness. say anything. I did rescue that, but I've had plenty of times when it was just, you know, the disaster ended up just being a disaster.
5: Yeah.
2: Alright, time to take some calls.
5: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
2: This is Jason.
5: Hi, Jason. Where are you calling from?
2: I'm in Dallas.
5: How can we help you today?
2: Well, I'm having trouble with my scallion pancakes. Oh. They, uh, <laughs> they look good, and they taste good, but I can't get them crispy all the way through.
5: Well, let's just pause for half a second, actually, and explain to people what these are. It's a Korean pancake with a lightish batter that you pour over vegetables in a skillet, and, you know, the vegetables have been cooked and caramelized. It's very thin, and then you cut it into wedges. Does that sound about like what you're doing?
2: Yep, exactly.
5: And you're just using scallions?
0: Uh Uh-huh. That's all I'm putting in there, scallions. No other vegetables. Are yours
5: fairly thin, or is the batter thick? Or are they thick?
0: Gosh, I don't know. I guess they're maybe an
6: eighth of an inch thick. Maybe well,
5: that seems right. I could see it being crisp on the outside, but moist on the inside, and I sort of think it should be. But clearly, okay. you must have had it crisp all the way through somewhere.
6: Yeah, you know, when I go to a restaurant, really, they're crisp all the, they're yeah they're crisp all the way through. Like mm-hmm. mine are kind of wet and
2: I'd say mushy. I just want them a little crisper all the way through.
5: Is the pan good and hot? Are you using, you know, some oil and making sure it's hot before you put the batter in the pan?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm doing that. Now, when I go to flip it, though, of course there's no oil. Do you put a little bit
5: on the second side?
2: Uh, no, I generally don't do that. I would. Okay.
5: That might help right there, Uh, maybe even up the temperature slightly to get a little crispier on the outside. I've also heard that if the batter is very cold and then you put it in a very hot pan, that that helps. So maybe you put the batter in the freezer for a bit and you put it in a very hot pan that will help to make it be even crispier. Now I'm going to see what Chris has to say. He's been surprisingly quiet.
2: Because I've never made a Korean scallion pancake. That's probably why. Uh, I I was in Taiwan a couple years ago, and they have scallion pancakes there too. I do know the hallmark of those pancakes are inside. They have this wonderful stretchy texture, which I really like. They had two kinds. They had the batter kind, which sounds like what you're doing, and then they also had the dough kind. That was the hallmark of that style. But it wasn't soft inside. It was sort of stretched and pulled apart. That was the kind I really like. I agree with Sarah that uh, I just think if you have a hotter pan and maybe colder batter and cook it enough. Is this a nonstick skillet you're using or a cast mm-hmm. iron or what nonstick? Yeah, nonstick. I would suggest, but it's problematic, using a big carbon steel pan, like a 12-inch carbon steel that's well-seasoned, because that will really give you the right kind of heat. But you got to really season it well because the batter will stick to it probably. But, yeah, I, okay. I would go with Sarah's suggestion.
5: And add oil for when you flip it. It's going to need it. That oil will help it to brown on the second side. All right. I'll give it yes. a shot. Okay. Well, thank you. Okay.
2: Thank you all. Take care. Okay. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Chris from Woodbury, New Jersey. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. How, how are you guys today? I'm pretty good. Uh, how can we help you? I actually had a question about spice rubs. Okay. I make this uh, spice rub. It's mostly consisting of brown sugar. Mm-hmm. And my issue is it tends to clump after about a day even in, in like a sealed container. It tends to clump a little bit more. Is there something I could do to stop that from actually happening? Is there something I could add to it? You can be like me and cheat. You can buy these white plastic containers. And on the inside of the top, it has a little pottery disk And you soak Mm. that in water for 20 minutes and then insert it into the top. And I keep brown sugar, which sounds pretty much most of what your spice rub is, in those containers in the fridge. And that stuff stays without clumping for a very long time. That would be one thing you could do. Other people suggest putting slices of white bread in to absorb excess moisture. I found that doesn't work as well. So those little containers, they're also called... Sugar bears, you can buy them separately online. Again, soak them and uh, put them in with the sugar. You could use a different kind of sugar, a drier sugar like a palm sugar, coconut sugar. Some of that coconut oh, yeah. sugar is very, very. It's almost like little pearls. My guess mm-hmm. is that wouldn't clump up as much. But I would just buy one of those containers. They're six or seven bucks and. I don't know. I think they do a pretty good job. Sarah,
5: I have had success actually with the bread situation. I've also done apples. Also, there's instructions on the back of the package about how you can microwave it to soften it up, to get it more smooth again, but you could also try turbinado sugars, another, you know, like Chris said, a different kind of sugar. But also, the problem with brown sugar is it doesn't distribute very well. So, in that case, maybe a different sugar would work better in your rubs.
2: I was just thinking the opposite, though, that if he wants spices to mix in with brown sugar, which is very moist, it would mix in. But a very granulated, you know, hard little bits, it may be that the spices and the sugar don't actually mix very well. My guess is just get a cheap container that that keeps it moist. With these other sugar substitutes, will it actually change the flavor uh, since it's not exactly brown sugar that I'm used to using? Palm sugar and coconut sugar are different. Yeah, Uh, turbinado, not so much.
4: Uh, Absolutely.
2: Well, try those, but uh, I think even if you're just storing brown sugar, you need to get those things anyway or or some method for keeping it moist. I mean, the the sandwich bread slices do work, but you have to keep replacing them.
4: Okay, gotcha. All right. Thank you very much.
2: Take care.
5: Thanks for calling, Chris. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye.
2: This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, we're here to help. Give us a call, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, it's Lee. Where are you calling from?
4: Oakland, California.
2: How can we help you?
4: I've been backpacking quite a bit recently, and I've been struggling to find food that tastes good, is lightweight, and is homemade. And a lot of the cooking books that I've seen use a dehydrator. And I don't really want to get one because I live in a small apartment. Do you have any recommendations?
2: Yeah. Here's some things that won't spoil that probably are worth doing. Tomato paste in a tube is a great way to start cooking. It adds a ton of flavor. You can actually okay. make make a tomato sauce using nothing but tomato paste and some spices and water, really. Grains. Fregolo fric is great. It cooks fairly quickly in water, or lentils mm-hmm. do as well. Get a jar of pesto or a salsa verde or something, obviously that's gonna keep and that'll add a ton of flavor. Okay. A good canned fish also works well. But I think grains, rice, and some flavoring bases, some spices or spice blends like sitar, Berbera, something like that. Those are the kinds of things like pantry ingredients that you keep at home you could take on the road okay. would be good. Um, Sarah?
5: I was thinking why not cured meats like salami or silversada. Yeah. A little bit of that goes a long way. You could add that to a pasta dish or a grain dish to really make it exciting. And I agree with everything else that Chris said. There's um, this thing called Backpacker Magazine.
4: I've seen that and I've read a lot of the like books with different recommendations and recipes.
2: I found that I wanted more of the a- gourmand-like type
4: recipe. Are there any, like, historical examples or meals that people would travel with back in the day that might work? I was thinking, like, Silk Road.
2: That would definitely be back in the day. (laughs) No. I mean, back in the day, everything was preserved, right? Because they didn't have refrigeration. So most of the food you ate, whether it was kimchi or cabbage or pickles or pickled vegetables, everything was preserved or fermented, so that would be the solution to that, but that's not...
5: No, it's not lightweight. Leaning on pantry ingredients, you can make terrific dishes out of all those dried things, you know, like pasta ingredients, a chunk of parmesan. anchovies. Yep,
2: anchovies are good. A chunk of parmesan would be great. Don't forget the grain. Yeah, because
5: again, it has yeah. very little also, water in it. Also,
2: I would think a really interesting pepper like round Aleppo pepper uh, or urfa pepper, one of those, adds a lot of flavor and obviously keeps forever. Okay. Give that a shot, and thanks for calling, man.
5: Thanks. Yes, thank you.
2: Take care. Bye.
5: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Susan Cast. Susan, where are you calling from? I'm
0: calling from Sun city,
5: Arizona. How can we help you? Uh, years ago, uh, well, I'm 82, so it's quite a few years ago. My mom always made a uh, what she called plum pudding, but I think she then changed it to suet pudding, for the holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas,
0: and uh, she used suet that she ground up and then used that in in the batter. I can't find suet <laughs> and I wondered what I could
5: use as a replacement. Well, okay, first of all, let me just say that I have also had a plum pudding when I grew up. <laughs> my grandmother, who'd gone to the Garland School of Cookery in Boston. That was one of the things uh-huh. she learned how to make and for people who don't know it's a british thing and you get this tin mold and you pack the batter yeah. into it and then you put it into yeah. a steamer and you steam it for hours and there are no plums in it it's got a lot of spices <laughs> and then it's got suet is yeah. an important ingredient and what suet is is the fat that you find around the kidneys in beef and uh, mm-hmm. understandably it's a little hard to get but Nigella Lawson, who's a famous British chef, TV personality, has suggested substituting shortening and actually Mm -hmm. grating it on the coarse side of a grater and putting it into the freezer to chill it. What I remember the most about it was that we would bring it to the table and pour brandy on it and light it and... Of course, I thought that was fantastic. And then we'd serve it with hard sauce, you know, which is butter and all sorts of alcohol. And of course, I was a kid, but somehow I really loved it. Anyway, Chris, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I
2: used to make plum pudding, and I have a little, you know, a little tin mold. You put a parchment paper over the top and put the top on and clip it. Put it in a big pot with water on a rack and steam it for a few hours I use suet. Uh, you could also use leaf lard, which is from a pig. It's around the kidneys as well, rendered leaf lard, mm-hmm. the vegetable uh, shortenings. I don't uh-huh. think that would add the flavor, though. But there's okay. also some other things, you know, the, the dried fruits and stuff you can put in. And alcohol, I put in the pudding itself. <laughs> oh, did but you? I, yeah, it's, it's not a hard recipe. You no, know, I have some flavors
5: uh,
0: cinnamon, cloves, and molasses. Does that mm-hmm. make sense?
2: Yeah, dried fruits, like currants, would be nice. I would throw some alcohol on that as well, because it should be um, richly flavored.
5: (laughs) Right. Susan, it sounds like you're doing
2: it right. So, uh, yeah. I appreciate it, and I love your show. Well, thanks for calling. We enjoyed your call. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with Olia Hercules about summer kitchens and the cooking of Ukraine. That and more in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allegash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street.
6: Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine, since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and... Realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do.
5: My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with
1: blood orange and shaved fennel.
4: My favorite would probably have to be
6: like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite
5: ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house. And a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's
0: just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about muscles with beer
5: especially the white that is just so good.
6: I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile.
5: I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice.
1: Pairing allagash white with carrot cake is a thing of beauty.
5: This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. (laughs) I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really
4: well with Allagash White. (laughs)
1: Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it.
5: A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer.
6: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you.
1: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
2: This is Year Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Olia Hercules. For her new book, she traveled around Ukraine exploring summer kitchens. Olia, welcome back to Milk Street.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Christopher, for having me back.
2: Let's start with a really simple slash stupid question. Where is Ukraine? <laughs> and and just describe a little bit about it, because I think most people, A, have never been there and are a little fuzzy on geography.
3: Yeah. Uh, Ukraine is the second largest country in Europe, actually, the second biggest after Russia, and it kind of is sandwiched between Russia uh, on the east, and then you've got Turkey, kind of across the Black Sea at the bottom. So it gets really hot in the su- in the south, actually. And then you've got Poland, Hungary, um, Romania, Moldova. Aha! Uh, uh-huh. Now my, my joke—if you haven't got all of the borders. Mm. So yeah, it's 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 kind of like Eastern Central Europe, but very very big.
2: So you grew up in. Kohovka. I don't know if I pronounced that properly. That was
3: perfect. Thank you.
2: And I've never (laughs) been there. Um, A small town on the river uh, in the southern part of Ukraine. Could you just describe the landscape, what it was like as a child there, just to give us a sense of, you know, maybe it was no different than growing up outside of New York City. I don't know. But what was it like? Uh,
3: No, the landscape is definitely different to New York City. Mm. Um, So I'm from the south of Ukraine and... um, It's, you know, it's that huge kind of swath of steps. Uh, Steps are kind of uh, um, really flat plains, basically, that run all through from Central Asia, kind of like finishing in, in Hungary. So super, super flat. You know, when I when I go back to Ukraine uh, from England, I just always say, oh, the sky is so big. It's so huge. You know, here we've got clouds hanging over our eyebrows, as my mom says, in London. Mm. But in Ukraine, where I grew up, it's, um, yeah, golden kind of like uh, expanse of fields. And uh, yes, I live uh, by, I used to live by Dnieper um, River. So you know, the town itself is a little bit kind of like Soviet industrial and can look very gray in winter. But in the summer, when all of the uh, greenery and the trees and the things are blooming, you know, it it becomes really quite beautiful.
2: And you've said to me before that the soil is really amazing. You, You actually have written about sometimes, you know, people have picked up the soil and moved it to other countries. It's so good. So, that means, of course, the produce, especially in the south, I guess, is particularly terrific.
3: Yes, you're, you're right. The soil in Ukraine is called Chernozem, and it's black hummus, basically. It's just, uh, yeah, it's really ancient and rich soil. And combined with that sun, because the south of Ukraine is actually not that far away from Turkey. So if you imagine how hot Turkey is, south of Ukraine gets really, really hot. So from May to October... It's just this, you know, scorching sun and uh, combined with that really black, rich earth. Yeah, the produce is just out of this world, really.
2: And because it's so hot, people often had summer kitchens, right? So so what what is a summer kitchen?
3: So a summer kitchen is a separate little building it looks like a miniature version of the of your main house and it's situated maybe a few steps away from your front door kind of thing it's within your small holding if you're living somewhere rurally but they also exist in small towns you know it looks it just looks like a house it's got a roof it's got a couple of windows and it's got a porch and a door. But as you come in, it's just one room. It's just a kitchen that, you know, is uh, d- d- disguising itself as a, as a little mini house. Uh, and this is where people cook in the summer. The reason why I think they also look like houses is because that's the first thing that a young couple would build, say, in, in the 50s, especially this kind of tradition developed. A young couple in Ukraine would get married and they'd get their land uh, with some luck. And then they'd build this small structure and live there for the kind of um, warmer months. And then they'd build a bigger house and they would uh, plant their vegetables and their orchard, etc. And then once all of that was over, they would just use this initial structure that they built as a summer kitchen. So to cook in all summer and also to preserve come September, uh, ferment and pickle and make jams, etc. Hundreds and hundreds of jars to be used all throughout winter.
2: Fermentation, the hot topic these days. Uh, I, some of the recipes you talk about in your book are fascinating. The two that really struck me was uh, fermented whole watermelons, <laughs> uh, and you use watermelon juice, you know, uh, as one of the liquids. And you said, and I didn't understand this: use rye to kickstart the fermentation. I don't quite understand that.
3: Yeah, so uh, rye berries and also rye flour, they, especially of course, if you're using organic stuff, it already has yeasts kind of clinging onto it. That's why, when you, for example, make a sourdough starter, you know, you're just mixing your rye flour and water, but there's already some yeasts present in the rye. Right. So it just kickstarts the fermentation uh, naturally.
2: Um, the other thing I noticed was fermented tomato pulp, and that sounded really good.
3: It is, it's fantastic. So we either kind of like blitz it up and then add a little bit of salt to it, and then let it ferment. And it's um, it's called Morse Or you can do this uh, other technique that I've got in summer kitchens, where you literally just smush it with a fork. You know, your really ripe tomatoes, and you sprinkle them with salt. And then you kind of have to keep an eye on them a little bit. Uh, but then it starts fermenting, and it's just the most incredible thing. Mm. It's so delicious and amazing addition to borscht.
2: Oh, I'm glad you mentioned borscht. Uh- A friend of mine actually is uh, from the Ukraine. He moved here many years ago and his wife cooked it for me once. And it was really much more of almost a meat soup, I think. My guess is there are hundreds of variations on that theme. But you talk about a lot in your book. Traditionally, what was borscht? I think you mentioned hogweed, goosefoot, uh, a very light orange color, (laughs) all these things I know nothing about. So what's the history of borscht?
3: Well, as you mentioned, like Borscht is so regional. It varies from uh, area to area in Ukraine and also all over Eastern Europe because Ukrainians are not the only ones that make it. Beetroot. You put, we put in, but not necessarily it's not... You don't have to put 10 beetroots to make it borscht. You know, we put three. And then, and actually the regional uh, borscht from the south of Ukraine, where I'm from, we actually use kind of pink beetroots that don't give off that red color. All of the color in our borscht comes from these mm. massive tomatoes that we grow. So it's kind of pink in color. You know, so I grew up kind of thinking, this is the correct borscht, you know, and then I started doing this research. And it's so varied.
2: So when people say... Ukrainian cuisine, is that just a ridiculous idea? Because there's, I mean, there must be, what, a dozen or I don't know how many, but there's different regions of the Ukraine have a totally different approach to cooking. As you said, it's the second largest country after Russia. Uh, So is there such a thing as Ukrainian cuisine? or Is there something that everyone makes that's pretty similar or is every region different?
3: No, I th- I think there is such a thing. Uh, there are kind of common themes going throughout the regions. You know, everybody will have their own version of borscht. Even if it varies, it's still borscht. Uh, then there would, uh, of course, be some kind of cabbage rolls. You know, all of the stereotypes maybe of Ukrainian cuisine that you know, that you've heard of, that, you know, everybody's got their version, dumplings, etc. But what would vary is... Of course, there are some regional dishes that completely do not repeat. For example, I've been to the southwest of Ukraine and I went to this uh, village that is historically Bulgarian, actually. And there are dishes that are very Turkic. You know, it was such an interesting picture that I saw once. We were sitting in the summer kitchen with this beautiful woman with a, you know, with a headscarf on, and she's sitting almost on the floor on this really small bench, and she's got this really large table in front of her and a really long rolling pin, and she's rolling out this dough. You know, she looked Turkish, but behind her, you know, you've got the Ukrainian embroidered uh, cloth that her mother's made. So it's the uh, mixture kind of interweaving of cultures is, um, is really interesting.
2: Uh, you, you went into this thing about spelt. you driven six hours. Uh, someone was going to cook spelt dumplings for you. And they told you, look, you're not going to feel heavy. Like after a usual dish of dumplings, you're going to feel enlivened and energetic. And in fact, you were. So did you get converted to the the spelt express here?
3: You know what? I was so dubious because I love my white flour and my dumplings that I'm really used to, yeah? Because... uh in the with industrialization, people have stopped using wholemeal flour. And the same in Ukraine. The Soviet Union, of course, it was super industrialized. But in the past, as this man told me, we did use a lot of wholemeal, even to make dumplings. And I was still like, oh, no, I'm going to hate this dumplings. You know, it's not going to be good. And then they made them. His wife made them. You have to work really quickly because um, the dough changes texture uh, and, and, and you, you won't be able to kind of like uh, stick them together very easily if you, if you doddle around too much. So she made them, so very simple spelt dough, spelt flour and water, and then you've got your sauerkraut and a little bit of mushroom inside, maybe some caramelized onions. She boiled them and she gave it to us with loads of homemade sour cream, and they were delicious. But you know, I did have 10, and I, I did, I did feel light. Uh, And energetic. It was the end of the day. And I thought I'll just be sleeping in the car because we had a really long uh, journey to Lviv afterwards. But I didn't. I felt really good. And yes, I am a convert. I still make the white dumplings. But um, my husband really loves the spelt ones. So yeah, we make them a lot.
2: In the book, you have some unusual ingredients, pig's ear, ox tongue, etc. And I assume like any rural cuisine, people using every part of the pig, for example. Yep. The animal. Could you just talk about those ingredients? and yes. in some, some of the ones you really like a lot.
3: Yeah. Um, so pig's ears are fantastic. They don't have much flavor, but I love that kind of crunchy cartilage. I don't know if you if you have to grow up with it to really love it, but I do enjoy it. And uh, luckily, my eight year old son really likes it as well. And the recipe is so good uh, because you you know you poach them first. Uh, in a nice kind of like stock or it can be just water and then afterwards you you can fry them or you can leave them as as they are but then you make this really powerful paste with uh, hot paprika and salt and garlic and then you kind of dress them in that and it it goes really well with beer
2: hmm. a couple of the things i noticed this idea of fat sallow uh, s-a-l-o, S-A-L-O. With maybe garlic in it or something, but the idea of fat on bread, especially a dark bread or a rye bread, is just one of those things. That's part of the culture, especially if you have a little vodka with it or something. Uh, is that true? Is that something that's just is a, a common dish to have?
3: Yes, it is. Um, in fact, my freezer is always stocked with it because my mom brings it from Ukraine every time she makes it and brings it over. It's like it's very similar to Italian lardo. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you would just slice it really, really thinly and you put it on a, a slice of rye bread, as you said, and it's just one of the most delicious things. You know, if you have a really good quality meat, of course, the fat is going to be so tasty. I mean, I don't know. I'm just a big lover of animal fat, so, and the salo is particularly good.
2: So let's step back a second. What is it like being in a U- Ukrainian kitchen? Because it's very different than the kitchen I grew up in, I'm sure. Could you just give us some sense of what that's like?
3: Yes. Um, I'll tell you how it was when I was growing up. So everything was extremely seasonal. So in the winter, you would just get root vegetables like rutabaga, your carrots, onions, uh, whatever. And in the summer, uh, again, you'd get whatever was growing in your garden or that you'd picked up in the market. And we didn't have convenient kind of foods in a way, we we, we didn't uh, cook out of a packet in a way, you know, everything was handmade and actually thinking back, some of it was pretty amazing and technical, some of the phyllo pastry that my mom would just knock up by hand, you know, on the Saturday afternoon, growing up it just seemed so regular and now thinking back, I'm thinking, wow, I was a really lucky kid. And of course, this whole culture of preserving was uh, also very prevalent and something that we grew up with. So, you know, if uh, especially if mom was making a huge vat of raspberry jam, you know, a really runny one, there would be this foam kind of rising to the top and we knew that a treat was coming, you know, and she'd just skim it off, put it in a bowl, and that was our treat. I mean, thinking about it, it's probably quite restaurant-like foam or something, you know, raspberry foam. Um, But it was amazing and I still have really warm memories of picking stuff that, you know, we would have grown in the garden and then helping mom with some menial jobs like taking... Uh, taking um, cherry stones out of the cherries or something like that, or sorting your 30 kilos of cucumbers for for pickling or whatever, you know, you had to have the perfect specimens. So, yeah, it was, thinking back, it was actually pretty magical.
2: Do you think the self-sufficiency, which maybe is more prevalent among people a little bit older, is is that really important to you, you think, the the ability to grow your own food and feed yourself even in hard times?
3: Oh, absolutely. Yes, it's it's one of the most important things. And, you know, the past couple of months, I know we were nowhere near, obviously, starvation or anything like that. Oh, my God, I c- couldn't get my, you know, online shopping slot. I know what it sounds like. But there was a there was a point where I thought, oh, what if they do run out of things? Or what if, you know, and then, then I just suddenly thought, oh, maybe we should dig up a little bit more of that lawn, you know, put more soil in and, and start growing. In Ukraine, it's definitely a very important part of people's lives. I don't know. And also, it's such a joy.
2: Olya, thank you so much. I have to say that the, the romanticism inherent in the summer kitchen is just lovely, Um, I just want to be there right now. So thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: That was Olya Hercules. Her new book is called Summer Kitchens. It's time to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, Taiwanese grilled corn. Catherine, how are you?
1: I'm fine, thanks. How are you?
2: I was in uh, Taipei in Taiwan and I went to Raohe Night Market. I got off the plane, went to the hotel, and then immediately went to the market. There had to be at least 100 food stalls there, and one of them was a rotisserie corn. Now, each individual ear is rotating over the fire, and we find out later they used a combination of lard as a base and a lot of fermented sauces that are unique to Taiwan, but it had a great color and a terrific outer coating and a lot of flavor. So we brought that back to Milk Street, And we don't have rotisserie of course. And we don't have some of those fermented pastes like shrimp paste they use. So your job was to figure out how to translate this recipe because we liked it a lot.
1: Yeah, you made it really easy for us, Chris. Find, you know, Food made on equipment we don't have and ingredients we can't find. That's me. Um, But, hey, we figured it out. What we ended up with was something really delicious that had those same flavor profiles, same kind of texture and smokiness. So what we did was instead of using the rotisserie, we just used a backyard grill. And you can use charcoal or you can use gas. The key is we're going to cook the corn in the husks. So rather than baste it while it cooks, we baste it towards the end to prevent that baste from burning.
2: So this is over a high heat or is this a medium heat?
1: Yes, Chris. It's high heat the whole time. You have the corn directly over the coals or over the flame. Once it's cool enough to handle, you husk it, you put it back on the grill, and that's when we baste it. So, Chris, we didn't have those dried shrimps that you talked about, and we decided not to use lard. But we were able to make a really flavorful sauce with similar kind of flavor profile using oyster sauce and rice vinegar, Worcestershire, and then also gochujang, which is a fermented chili paste from Korea. And even though it's a fermented chili paste, it's not particularly hot. It's more sweet and salty with just a little bit of heat.
2: And what are you going to say to all the listeners who just said, gochujang what? They've never heard of it before, and they don't think they can get it.
1: I will say go to your local grocer. Of course, you can always order this online, but you'd be surprised, gochujang is everywhere now. We're seeing it in all kinds of grocery stores. It really is the next sriracha.
2: And you can buy gochujang potato chips. You can. So it's on everything. It's, at least It's not a dessert topping yet, but it's on everything else. So you baste it and just cook it a few minutes to finish?
1: That's right, Chris. So it's only going to take another five to seven minutes and then you transfer it to a platter and then to dress it up a little bit, we did add some fresh cilantro and sesame seeds.
2: Not something they do, by the way, in Taipei, but I think it adds a little bit of flair to it. Catherine, thank you very much. Taiwanese grilled corn brought home from Taipei. You can do it on your backyard grill. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. You can find this recipe and all of our recipes at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman tells us how to achieve snacking perfection at the beach. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. This is Most Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners.
5: Hi, this is Sheila from Oregon, Wisconsin, and here's my tip. If you ever find grapefruit spoons at a garage sale or tag sale, buy them. I find they're useless for grapefruits, but ideal on avocados and kiwis. That's it.
2: If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash tips. Next up, it's the unpredictable Dan Pashman. Dan Pashman, how are you? I'm doing all right, Chris. How have you been? I've uh, been okay. i um, been looking forward to chatting with you. I'm sure you'll have a different take on the world, and um, I think I could use a different take.
0: Well, yeah, and you know, um, this time of year, uh, hopefully folks are having the opportunity to get to the beach a little bit. Do you go to the beach, Chris? Never. <laughs> I- <laughs> Under no circumstances I don't th- do I-, I go to the beach. I don't think I could even picture you in shorts.
2: Well, I have this thing about shorts. I think if you're over 25, you shouldn't be allowed to buy shorts. I think it should be Just illegal. (laughs) So, so no, I don't wear shorts either. Or T-shirts.
0: Right. So this segment may not resonate very deeply with you. (laughs) It's possible. (laughs) But here's the thing. I think, you know, when I go to the beach, I want to bring snacks. And I think that we all need to think a little bit more carefully about pairing our snacks with the beach. Because the beach is a unique culinary environment, Chris. Well, you know, on the few vacations I've been on,
2: which included the beach... I think you're absolutely right. I think doing anything on a beach, reading, eating, drinking uh, has to be a customized experience That's so, a, um, exactly I'm with you.
0: It's its own ecosystem yeah. and in particular right. with regard to the way that it affects your palate, you have salt air and salt water. So there there huh. you, you enter the beach environment and there is already a baseline of salinity that does hmm. not exist in other environments. And this is going to be on your tongue. It's going to be in your nose. If you go in the water, obviously, even be enhanced. You know, I, th- I think we talked years ago, Chris, about the research around eating on an airplane, which shows right. that because it's so dry in an airplane, your taste perception is decreased. And so they design airplane food with more salt. Right. I think that because of the high salinity in the beach environment, you must go in one of two directions either lean into the salt, and if you're going to do that, you need extra salt because there's already salt everywhere. So you're not going to taste mild salt because there's mild salt in the air. Or you can go to the other extreme and go like extreme juicy sweet. I did, well,
2: okay. so 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 you're saying that there's a baseline of salt. So if you want to notice salt, you have to double down.
0: That's right. Salty chips, salty pretzels, all those kinds of things are great at the beach. I think they're enhanced by the salty environment, but I also will recommend salting your fruit. You're salting a banana? I mean, what are you, <laughs> what are you well, salting? Salted watermelon would be my, my top choice. Okay. Okay. Like in, in the same way you yeah. might add a salty cheese, like a feta cheese, to watermelon. Yeah. Uh, just bring your Malden salt to the beach. Right. Get fancy. Break out your watermelon and you sprinkle salt on it right there. You don't want to let it sit in the salt. So you got to bring the salt and apply at the beach. If it sits in the salt, it'll bring out all the water. It won't be as good. But a little bit of salt in that watermelon takes it to a whole other level. But but to be fair, Dan,
2: uh, that would be true if you're sitting inside at 65 degrees out of the sun. I mean, salt on watermelon is a good idea, or even a little chili, right, something spicy. That would work at the beach or not, right?
0: Yes, salt on watermelon is good all the time, but I believe the experience is enhanced at the beach because of the salty air. It sort of like brings the experience of your external environment and your palate all together as one. And you get that salt that brings forth the flavor. You get the juice. And I will actually go so far. This is another one, Chris, where I think, yeah, it's delicious anytime, especially in hot weather, but especially at the beach. Salt your beer. Really? Yes. You take a can of beer, crack it open, squeeze some lime juice in there, and then sprinkle salt on the top. Not a lot, just a pinch. You know, it'll be gone by the time you're halfway through the can. And you get the watermelon going and the salty air and the breeze from the ocean, and it is absolutely divine.
2: So you're in Margaritaville, really.
0: Right. With <laughs> the margarita, which is you know, a, an all time great hot weather drink, perfect example of a situation where salt is. And fruit come together with alcohol and the ocean to create a 360-degree taste experience.
2: So the Pashman family gets out of its minivan or whatever at the beach parking lot. Right. And you you have the picnic basket. You have the snorkel and fins and other accoutrements. <laughs> right, right. The kids have to bring their whatever. And then you bring a large bag with beer
0: and watermelon. Correct. <laughs>
2: Yes. Okay, just So you've got you're loaded down to go to the beach. Yes, for the and, afternoon.
0: and then I pull out my little box of Malden salt, there and you know. I start lecturing people on the importance of good salt, and they start rolling their eyes and tuning me out pretty quickly. Um, but then they stop complaining when they start eating the watermelon. Okay, so
2: salt uh, in a salty environment, add more salt. That's right. And I love the um, I love the watermelon and the beer. That's um, If I have to go to the beach, I will bring a six-pack Malden salt and a watermelon. Dan Pashman, great advice for beachgoers. Thank you so much. Cheers, Chris. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sportful Food podcast. Dan says that salty snacks fare best with salty seaside air. It's a question of overcompensation for a higher ambient level of salt. And that does sound like basic food science, and someone's probably done a study. But I wouldn't laugh. In the 1960s, scientists studied the reaction of students when told that they had to limit their alcohol intake. The answer was, they got mad and simply drank more. So maybe we don't need scientists to explain basic human behavior. Potato chips taste good on the beach, no matter what the science tells us. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening.
1: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsaba, Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp, And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Bernal-Eggloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.